Well, good morning, everyone. Everyone else got their got their costumes off. Here I am, still up here in mine. Uh, don't know how my liturgically minded brothers and sisters get by with these every Sunday, but alas, here we are. Uh, we're beginning a new series in the in the book of Ephesians, as Pastor Andrew said, and we're here to kick off a new semester. Now, some of you are no doubt a little bit overwhelmed by the happenings of the previous few days. New living arrangements, new roommates, new teachers, new place to worship on Sundays. Others of you, the people that are kind of long-term in this community, may feel as I do that the annual transition from August to September felt a lot like going from first to fifth without any intervening gears. Kind of a little bit of a whiplash sensation going on there. But we're all here. We do this week in and week out. We've been doing this for 20 centuries now. In one form or another, Christians have gathered week by week to pray, to sing praise to God, to hear from his word, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to encourage one another toward faithful discipleship. Because whether you know it or not, whether we know it or not, we are all a family. Whether you know it or not, you've come today to a family reunion. We're going to spend the next number of weeks from now until Advent making our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. There are tremendous riches in this little book, especially as we try to understand what does it mean to be a family of faith. Because scripture uses family language with great frequency as, as the authors of God's word try to get across what does it mean for us to be the church. And if we pay attention to it, it'll be both a guide to us and I think a challenge to us as we try to live this out in our midst, in this community. So we're going to talk today about a subject that's, that's very near and dear uh, to my heart, and that is adoption. So how many of you uh, are adoptive parents? Any adoptive parents in here? A- anybody that is adopted? Well, we've got a few, and, and some of you I probably didn't, didn't even know about. Anybody uh, have, a, you're not adopted, but maybe you have a sibling that's adopted. Maybe you have an adopted grandchild. I know, I know a few of your stories, and, and it's, it's not something we always know about one another even. But last year, around this time, Dashell and I announced that we were planning to adopt a child. And we spent a lot of the spring and summer in 2017 filling out forms and running here and there and talking to government people and social services and filling out more forms and then filling out some more forms and finally we filled out some more forms and we were accepted to become adopted parents. Uh, We were accepted by our agency into the adoption program for Haiti uh, late in the summer, early fall last year. Now a lot of you have been asking in recent weeks how that's all going and if there's any news and well to be kind of quite honest there isn't a whole lot of news. Our agency gives us regular updates and and they've been making progress with a number of families that they're working with. They've made some proposals to families this year and completed a small number of adoptions. And we can't say for sure, but it seems likely we'll receive a proposal sometime in 2019. While this is an experience that makes for learning patience, it hasn't, it's not like it's been a discouraging experience. We have confidence that things are moving along, just not very fast, and we'll continue to do so. But we do appreciate and we thank you for your continued prayers for us and for our little person. We don't know if we're getting a girl or a boy, but we do know that there's a pretty good chance that whoever we are getting is, is alive 
uh, somewhere in Haiti. And so we pray for them. Chances are we'll be getting about a two to four year old child. So if anything should suddenly change, we'll let you know. But so far, we're just waiting. Of course, one of the amazing things about adopting a child is that it's a picture used in Scripture for God's family and how we become God's children. Right? When we call God Father, we're doing so not because we really have any right to do so. We don't have a claim on God as his natural children, but we are all adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Adoption is our starting point for our sermon series because it's our entry point into the family of God. And so if you'd like to stand, for, uh, as we normally do, to read our sermon passage, turn to the book of Ephesians. And we'll read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, reading from the ESV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Oh, sorry, back up. That comes later. Uh, Paul opens with what is a pretty typical greeting formula. On the one hand, we may uh, be too easily uh, just rush past it, because he opens all his letters in a pretty similar fashion. On the other, we could spend all day unpacking each term. We won't do that, uh, just for the sake of time. But perhaps on your own time, you might want to spend a few moments reflecting on how significant it is. We're reading someone else's mail. That's what this greeting signifies, right? The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church that really existed once upon a time in the city of Ephesus to instruct the brothers and sisters there. And we are still benefiting from the wisdom and the instruction that he shared with them. So we'll just dive in at verse 3, where he talks about blessings, blessed. 
Now in verse 3, Paul begins this massive sentence where he stacks prepositional phrases and subordinate clauses, one on top of the other like a game of Jenga. And to unpack that in detail would take us hours and hours, and we don't have that much time. But if that sort of thing is of interest to you, uh, I believe we're still prior to college ad drop date. And uh, if you want to sign up for Greek with Dr. Wes Olmsted, he'll be happy to begin the process of helping you to understand how all this works. The main thing we should note here is that Paul opens with this sort of thesis statement, blessed be God, and then follows it up with all these supporting reasons why God is to be blessed and praised. Now, bless and blessed have become such Christian cliches that we hardly know what they even mean. The hashtag blessed is one of the most popular ones on Instagram. There's like 11 billion photos tagged hashtag blessed. But they seem to mostly be photos of scantily clad men and women trying to show off how beautiful or muscular or fit they are and or photos of people in, you know, exotic locations or enjoying luxury goods. They're kind of a far cry from our Lord's word about blessed are the poor in spirit and such. And the problem is when we Christians absorb this kind of rubbish and assume that that's what the word actually means without even thinking about it. But just in case there's any doubt, Paul spends a great deal of time explaining and outlining what sort of things he's talking about when he uses this word, when he says that God has blessed us. He's not speaking about good looks, natural or otherwise, and he's not talking about luxury clothes, cars, or vacations. Rather, he's speaking about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, which comes in Christ. This is not to say we should not be grateful for physical or earthly blessings or that these areas are not part of God's good gifts to us. But they're not the primary area where we should see God's gifts at work and his blessings at work in our lives. The main thing that gets Paul excited when he talks about God's blessings are the blessings that come to us in Christ. So what, what, what makes up this? Well, one of the first things is that he has predestined us for adoption. Let's not get hung up on predestination here. That, that is a rabbit trail that we can go down and a rabbit hole we can fall into and we'll get all off track, right? Because so we often get all hung up on philosophical, metaphysical issues. We ask certain kinds of questions there that Scripture may not even be all that interested in answering. The point that Paul is trying to make here, and later St. Augustine and Calvin and, and others who have emphasized predestination, was that salvation is first and foremost rooted in the will and the decision of God. Your eternal salvation is a matter of what God has declared about you in Christ. Not a matter of what priests or popes or gurus or in Paul's world principalities and powers or anything else says about you. Perhaps rather than fighting about words and such, we should all sit back and marvel that the God of the universe chose you and chose you and you and you and me with all our failures and sins and brokenness and all the rest of it. He chose us chose us and adopted us as his own. This isn't like Anne of Green Gables, if you saw that this summer, or Little Orphan Annie, right? Where the orphan shows up as, oh, wait, no, we don't want that orphan, right? We clearly requested a different one. 
and there's some convincing needs to happen after the fact. No, God is not up in heaven thinking, oh, I, oh that's an accident. Didn't mean to adopt that one. Let's, let's talk about adoption, though, a little bit, especially as it pertained to Paul's culture, because it's a little bit different than our own. Some notable differences maybe we should be aware of. In Roman culture, adoption was a pretty common and well-regulated practice. But Roman culture definitely did not have much regard for orphans. So while adoption was commonly practiced, people rarely adopted infants and almost certainly did not just go out and find a random needy orphan to adopt as their own child. This because adoption was, for the most part, all about inheritance. And as we'll see, this plays a part in our passage today. Inheritance, especially among the wealthy people, was a really big deal. This is how the aristocratic class kept their whole project going, right? Wealthy and influential families would pass down their titles and their land and their influence and all of this to the next generation and the next and the next. And this is basically how all societies worked up until quite recently. But what should happen if you have no children or, or if you only have girls? I told you this. This is, you know, we know this, right? Pride and Prejudice, the Crawley Sisters at Downton Abbey... What do you do? They can't inherit, so... Well, in Roman times, and unlike other societies, you had the the option of adoption. How this would work is usually a a wealthy, probably by this point in his life, middle-aged man would adopt a, a teenage boy or a young man who could become his heir. Sometimes a distant family member, sometimes just someone from another, another solid family. Rarely did he adopt an infant or a small child because he wanted to see that this young man he was adopting as his heir showed some promise of actually being able to carry on the family name and manage the estate and do all these sorts of things eventually when he inherited it. He certainly wouldn't have entertained thoughts of adopting some random orphan they didn't even know whose parentage was uncertain. And this is a lot different than what we think of now in our modern practices of adoption. Our practices are far less about things like family lines of succession and much more about raising an infant or a small child as your own. Of course, there would have been exceptions in Roman culture, but for the most part, their practice of adoption was a lot more formal, even transactional. Against that, we have in Scripture that the Lord adopted us in love. Now, there is some debate about whether in love at the end of verse 4 belongs with he predestined us to adoption as sons, as the ESV has it, or that we should be holy and blameless before him, uh, what just comes before. Translations are split on this issue, and they reflect their position accordingly, but there are good reasons for both. For the purpose of our message today, though, I'm going to go with uh, taking adoption in love as connected with uh, predestined as adoption. As one commentator wrote, Predestination to adoption is not some cold, abstract act of an impersonal God, but an act of love of an inexpressibly gracious kind. Here's the thing. When we get too wrapped up in philosophizing about predestination, we don't have time to marvel at the idea. God chose. He didn't have to take any action to save any of us. He chose to. He certainly didn't have to go to the extravagant lengths he did, not just to save us, but to adopt us as his own children. The aspect that should be most gripping to our hearts is not 
getting all worried about who God chose or how God chose, but marveling at the fact that God chose at all. He didn't adopt us accidentally and then need some convincing afterwards. And he didn't adopt us because he had no son or heir. He certainly did in his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So unlike many adoptions in our own time or in the Apostle Paul's time, God did not adopt us because of any, any need or any lack on his part, but purely out of his overflowing gracious love toward us. But it runs even deeper than that. Adoption isn't just out of love. It's in forgiveness of our sins. Look at verse 7 and following. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, according to his grace, which he lavished on us. Adoption as God's children means that there's been a, a clear break with the past. We're part of a new family now. Obviously, any analogy, even scriptural ones, will break down if you, you press them too far. But the main thing to grab onto here is that God has adopted us into his family in a way that actually changes us fundamentally. He provides forgiveness of our sins and the power to actually deal with those sins and be free of them. He's not just ignoring them or pretending that they don't matter or that he doesn't see them. He's just keeping quiet about them. In Jesus, he's dealt with them. It doesn't say he just dispensed grace or that he just applied grace, though that would be true. It says that he lavished it on us. He delighted to bestow his grace on us. He didn't just grudgingly deal with our sins out of sheer necessity. He lavished us with his grace and cleansing to restore us to himself. Now I know it's sometimes regarded as just hopelessly out of date to talk about things as antiquated like sin or trespasses. But if we actually believe that the Son of God became a man and lived and died for us, for our sins, and rose again for our justifications, then our sins must be pretty significant. If that's what it took to free us from them, then our bondage must have been more severe than we often dare to think. As I said earlier, adoption uh, in our modern context in that context, inheritance doesn't figure as prominently as it did in Paul's day in the first century. But in Paul's world, it loomed large. And it's an important point in the concluding verses of our passage. Now, somewhere in various financial institutions in this area, there are some signed papers with my name on them. These represent investments that are held jointly with my grandmother. Um, and, of course, she has rights to those and draws the income from them, the interest every year. But when it comes her time to depart this life, I will inherit those funds. Now, I won't get rich, but they aren't insignificant either. Funny story. I, I went back to my hometown to sign the papers at the bank. Small town. They didn't even ask for ID. They just handed me the papers. I'm like, you sure you're going to let me put my name on that much money without... Okay, I, you trust me, Sure. But is what I have in that piece of paper that they didn't want any ID for, that's a signed guarantee of my inheritance, which I will receive someday. The Apostle Paul also speaks about both an inheritance and a guarantee, but it looks rather different. What is our inheritance? Well, simply put, all that is Christ's will be ours, too. We will, Scripture tells us, inherit the kingdom and rule and reign with Christ eternally. 
And in the meantime, we have a guarantee in his promised Holy Spirit. But what does that even look like? I think where we usually go, and this isn't bad, but where we usually go has to do a lot with personal holiness. Am I avoiding sin better than I did a year ago? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying more? Am I loving others more? Am I showing the fruit of the Spirit more? Love, joy, peace, patience. There's nothing wrong with this sort of thinking. Scripture encourages us, right, to personal holiness, to take stock of how we're doing in walking with the Lord. But we're selling the Spirit's work in our lives short if we limit it just or even primarily to personal holiness and personal progress. Here's the thing. We notice, don't we, that the New Testament language is so often plural? But I think we just tend to assume that that means Paul is talking to a large number of individuals. And that's because in our culture, the individual is primary. But Paul's society, and many, if not most societies, worked the other way. The, the gathered collective was primary, and the individual found their place in relation to that. The collective whole, in that sense, was more than just the sum of its individual parts. Why am I telling you all this? Because for Paul, the evidence that the Holy Spirit was actually at work in our lives which is the down payment and guarantee of our inheritance, is always worked out in community. The mark that the gospel Paul preached had truly taken root, had at least as much, probably more so, to do with the formation of countercultural communities, wherever he went, wherever he preached, wherever he planted churches. Countercultural communities where Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, worshipped alongside one another as equals in Christ. How do we know what love is unless we have others to interact with, who we give love to and who we receive love from? How do we know what joy is unless we share it with one another? How do we know what patience and self-control are unless we have others that we interact with that challenge that from time to time? It's not a zucchini. A lot of us like the idea of being adopted by our Heavenly Father. We're just not sure we like the logical conclusion of that, that we're all family. If I'm adopted, you're adopted, and you're adopted, and you're adopted, that makes us all siblings in God's family. This is why family language is used all over the New Testament. We're saved from our sins. We're saved for eternity with our Lord, but we are also saved into the family of God. That's what we'll be looking at. That's where we'll be going over these next few weeks. Many of us are pretty clear on the fact that Jesus died to take the penalty of our sins, that he was raised from the dead to make us right with God. Many of us are clear that by faith in his work, we are saved, and, and Christ's merits are applied to us, even though we didn't deserve them. And these truths play an important part of what Paul tells the Ephesians, and by extension, what he tells us. There is a sense that all Christians everywhere are part of God's global family called the church. That defines us. However, we are also defined by the fact that we come together with some sort of agreement to be a local church, to be the body gathered together in a specific place with actual people that we must love and care for and be accountable to, however that looks. What does it look like for us to live that out on a Sunday morning as we worship, as we pray together, as we hear from God's word, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? 
What does that look like as we go out to be the church in our different contexts the other six days of the week? In our homes, in our workplaces, on our halls, in all our social and other interactions. As Christy reminded us in that staff video, we're supposed to be a family. And as Pastor Rick and Andrew reminded us, We don't just go to church. We are the church. The church gathers to worship, and the church goes out to be on God's mission as well. Adoption as God's children is our entry point into this family. And just like with a legal adoption, there is a formal guarantee. There are a lot of steps that we found out about that you have to go through in order to become adoptive parents. And domestic adoption and international adoption, there's some different rules. But what is common to all is that at some point, adoptive parents have to appear before a judge. And, and they, they present themselves, and the child is presented as, as having no parents, usually being an orphan, being a ward of the state, and thus a suitable candidate for adoption. The parents' suitability to be adoptive parents is reviewed, and uh, the judge makes a declaration. I don't know if he actually always hits the desk with his little hammer or not, but he makes a legally binding ruling. And at that point, and of course we're very much looking forward to this, the the child legally becomes part of our family. In God's family, it works a little bit different. 2,000 years ago, in an upper room in Jerusalem, a Jewish carpenter known as Jesus of Nazareth met with a ragtag crew of 12 other Jewish men, perhaps a few of his other close followers. They were celebrating Israel's national holiday, the Passover. Year by year, for centuries, and still to this day, faithful Jews have celebrated God's covenant, God's legally binding agreement with his people to free them from bondage and slavery in Egypt when he redeemed them. But as Jesus celebrated with his disciples. He took a drastic step and explained to them that what they were celebrating actually pertained to himself. What he was about to do by going to the cross completed and redefined what that meal was all about. Not just salvation from bondage and slavery in Egypt, but salvation from sin and even from death. And as they gathered and partook with him, He formalized it in a new covenant, a new legally binding agreement. Not just a document notarized by a judge and signed by all concerned parties, but a covenant guaranteed by the Lord God and signed in his own blood. We reenact and participate in that same covenant guarantee Sunday by Sunday. It's fitting that the guarantee of our acceptance, our adoption into the family, should happen around a table. Each time we do this, we're not just repeating a ritual. We're not just remembering Jesus, though we're certainly doing that. Each time we do this, we are confirming and celebrating anew the covenant that we have with our Lord and he with us. We are confirming anew when we celebrate and participate that we are adopted into God's family. And so I would invite those who are going to be serving and our worship team to come up.